Keith, as I get up to preach, the words of your opening are ringing in my ears. If in the face of God's transcendence we speak, we will say things we wish we hadn't. Pray for me. <laughs> Have you ever had a really moving experience, a holy moment, a time when God seemed especially near? Maybe it was during a nature hike, maybe while washing dishes. It could happen. Or maybe listening to music, having dinner with a friend, or perhaps right here during worship at church. What was the lasting impact of that time on your life? Did it make a difference? Did it change you or shape you in some way? Is that impact still with you? Whatever your experience was, I'm guessing none of you encountered a horse and chariot of fire that carried your closest friend off into heaven, and that none of you ended up on a mountain with the likes of Menno Simons, Dorothy Day, or Martin Luther King Jr., and a voice that spoke out of a cloud. So the stories in today's lectionary are in some ways a little hard to connect to, at least they were for me, until I read more of the context and the characters and the stories that surround these texts. And then I started to feel a lot more engaged, but also a lot more uncomfortable all at the same time. So a bit of retelling. These characters from the Old and New Testament texts sometimes act in parallel ways that I find absolutely fascinating and also troubling. So let's begin with the story of Elisha and Elijah. And I confess, these two names are hard to keep straight. It would be easier if it were Elisha and Bob, but it's Elisha and Elijah. So in case I get them mixed up, uh, please forgive me. Elijah is the one who was carried off into heaven. Elisha stayed here. So Elijah was one of the most revered prophets in all of Israel. The stories in First and Second Kings about Elijah are both awe-inspiring and frightening. He was, in some ways, a rather scary man. Now, one of the most famous stories, which happens before our text today, is the encounter with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, where Elijah spends all day taunting the prophets of Baal to call on their God to rain down fire from heaven and burn up the offering which they had prepared for him. When despite their best efforts, this does not happen, Elijah pours water all over the offering he has prepared, says a prayer to God, and fire comes pouring down out of heaven and burns up the offering. Elijah's faith and the God of Israel is, are vindicated. The devastating drought that had plagued Israel is ended by a rainstorm, and Elijah proceeds to kill all the prophets of Baal and Asherah, numbering 850. On another occasion, just before today's story, Elijah meets messengers from King Ahaziah. King Ahaziah, it seems, had taken a bad fall and was lying in bed wondering, am I going to live? So he sends messengers off to Baal, the god of the Philistines, to find out if he will live. Elijah intercepts them and tells them to go back and tell their king that he will die and that really they should have come to him to inquire of the God of Israel in the first place. So King Ahaziah wants to meet Elijah and sends 50 messengers to invite Elijah to come to him. Elijah says, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 prophets. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. 
So the king sends 50 more messengers, and the same action is repeated. So now we have 100 burnt corpses surrounding Elijah, plus the 850 prophets of Baal he had killed earlier. Clearly, if you go to meet Elijah, you go with fear and trembling. Elijah has access to some kind of power, some, some kind of spirit that the biblical text clearly implies comes from God, and he has used it to kill 950 people. Viewed from our vantage point thousands of years later, it leaves us feeling a little numb. But wait, the plot thickens. Today's text comes immediately after this dramatic story of fire from heaven and the two groups of 50 messengers. This time, fire from heaven comes in the form of chariots and horses of fire to take Elisha into heaven. Now, Elisha, his fellow prophet, knows this is going to happen, so follows Elijah everywhere that he goes because, as he says, I want a double portion of your spirit. Now, that's a little scary. So, as we heard the story read, the chariots and horses separate Elisha and Elijah. Elijah is taken up into heaven. Elijah, Elisha is left behind. What a profound moment of loss that must have been for Elisha. But he finds Elijah's mantle lying on the ground, picks it up, and takes it with him. Returns to Jericho and the company of prophets he had been with earlier, and as soon as they saw him, they said, Ah! The spirit of Elijah rests on him. So Elisha has had this dramatic encounter with God and received the same spirit that rested on Elijah, who was a fearless prophet. What will he do with this? How will this shape him? Well, the story we heard last Sunday about Elisha's involvement in the healing of Naaman happens sometimes after this. Later on, Elisha raises a child from the dead, and he even orders the king of Israel, who had captured the enemy army and wants to kill them, to instead set a feast before them and then send the captured army home. And this he does. A period of peace ensues. So clearly, God's power rested on Elisha. But it's what happened next. Just shortly after Elisha receives the spirit of Elijah, makes my blood run cold. Elisha is walking back from Jericho to Bethel when some young boys come out and start taunting Elisha, saying, Go away, bald head! Go up, bald head! So Elisha curses them in the name of God, and two she-bears come out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. The death toll now between these two men of God is 992. I remember this story from a children's Bible story book. I've rarely read it since. It's true. I've rarely read it since, but it sticks like a sour lump in my stomach and won't go away. Is this where our close encounters with the power of God are supposed to lead us? The second King's text offers no commentary. The next verse simply says, and from there, Elisha went on to Mount Carmel, and then returned to Samaria, like it was the most normal thing in the world. But somebody, somebody counted the boys. So I return again to my beginning questions. Have you ever had a really moving experience, a holy moment 
a time when God seemed especially near. Maybe it was during a nature hike, maybe while doing laundry, or having a meal with a friend, or maybe right here at church. What was the lasting impact of that time or experience in your life? Did it change you or shape you in some way? Is it still with you? And was the impact a good one? So let's take a deep breath and move on to the New Testament passages. Hopefully things will get better. We'll see. I confess that for the New Testament passages that surround the Transfiguration, I'm actually going to switch to the Luke account because of some of the incredible parallels to the Elisha-Elijah story. So if there is such a thing as lectionary sin, I'm going to commit it this morning. <laughs> well, this time, Peter, James, and John go up onto a mountain with Jesus, and it is very dramatic. Jesus' garments turn brighter and whiter than any bleach on earth could make them. I find that reference fun. And who should appear with them but Moses and Elijah, Moses the lawgiver, the liberator who led the children of Israel out of Egypt, and Elijah the great prophet who totally humiliated the prophets of Baal and proved the power of God of Israel. These great figures of Israel's history stood there with Jesus, giving Jesus the legitimacy of their tradition and spirit. And the voice from the cloud reaffirms Jesus as the Son of God. The disciples, especially Peter, are absolutely enthralled because it puts them in touch with the power and blessing of God. Peter wants to stay there and build shelters. It's like he wants to put the moment in a bottle and preserve it, and take it back with him. This is, was a truly holy moment, making what unfolded over the next couple days absolutely astounding. So shortly after coming down from the mountain, the disciples, they get into an argument about who is the greatest. Having touched the most powerful people in Israel's history on the mountain, they argued with one another about which one of them would carry on this legacy, this power. We do learn that they were on their way to Jerusalem. Visions of political power may have been dancing in their heads, and they were quick to grasp it. Significantly, Jesus chooses this moment to take a child and sit down with the child and then say to the disciples, whoever welcomes this child welcomes me. The least among you is the greatest. Jesus turns power on its head. Jesus turns greatness on its head. We have Elijah and Moses and the child. Jesus turns greatness on its heads. By welcoming the children, Jesus says, we welcome God into our midst. And so we welcome and value children not only for their sake, but also for our own. We welcome children in recognition that greatness is not achieved by competing with others to climb up the social ladder, but by welcoming and becoming like a child. So as we do our theology and our planning about the future, our children need to be at the center of our hearts and minds. So as Jesus and the disciples move on toward Jerusalem, they travel through Samaria, an admittedly very risky thing to do. There's a lot of, a lot of uh, tension, hostility, and sometimes violence between Jews and Samaritans. They are social enemies. So it seems like Jesus' decision to actually go through Samaria was very deliberate. Well, they are tired from their journey, so Jesus sent James and John ahead to a village. 
a Samaritan village, to ask for hospitality, perhaps some food, some drink, a place to stay for the night. But the Samaritans, seeing that Jesus and the disciples were on their way to Jerusalem, and there's history behind this, refused to offer hospitality. This was a definite insult, and James and John were furious. Think about it. They had just been on the mountain with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. The kingdom was coming. They were on their way to Jerusalem. They were going to hold important positions of power. And here was this miserable Samaritan village not even showing them the courtesy of a drink of water. They went straight to Jesus and said, Shall we call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Perhaps they were emboldened by having touched the spirit of Elijah. Perhaps they thought of fire from heaven as a natural response to an insult, as a way to send a message to all Samaritans that they should show them honor and respect. Fire from heaven, yes, a holy fire sent by a righteous God to destroy their enemies. One day in Laos, just to make a little leap, <laughs> I was visiting the southern province of Savannakhet. Our plan for the day was to visit a district health clinic in the, in the district of Jampon, about an hour's drive from the capital city of, of uh, the province. I was traveling with a doctor from the Ministry of Health, and as was usually the case, it was the local officials, in this case the uh, local health committee, that made all the logistical and travel arrangements. So after breakfast, we gathered outside the guest house to get into our vehicle, when I had a surprise. There, on the back of the truck, were four Lao soldiers armed with machine guns and grenade launchers. The area we were going to be traveling through was a rather insecure area uh, due to some insurgent activity. So the plan was to take along with us for our protection prepackaged, preemptive, high-tech fire from heaven. So how many of you would have gotten into the pickup truck? What do you think? Nobody? How many would not? Oh, come on. <laughs> well, you were about as non-committal as I was, but we'll pick up that story again shortly. Ask us next Sunday. Next Sunday, okay. We'll ask you next Sunday. Jesus rebuked James and John, getting back to that earlier story. They went on to another village. But in this remarkable series of events in the Luke narrative, there was yet another shoe to drop. It was just a couple days later, in response to a question that Jesus told a story, a story that we all know and love. There was a man walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves who beat him up and left him to lie beside the road for dead. And as he told the story, the drama increased, First, a priest came by, looked at the, dead, at the man who he thought was dead and walked by on the other side without offering a bit of help. Next was a Levite who did the same thing, left the man to lie beside the road for dead and walked by on the other side. The disciples are leaning forward because they know that the story has three people coming and the third person is going to be the hero. And likely they're thinking, based on their earlier thoughts, that the hero will likely be huh, one of them. You know, maybe a fisherman or a common person, not one of those holy religious people who really can't follow the law properly. And then Jesus tells them the third person who came along was a Samaritan. 
It's almost as if Jesus reached back into their lives a few days earlier at that Samaritan village, picks one of them up and plops them down here in the story as the hero, the one who offers grace, healing, and mercy to the wounded traveler. Can you imagine their consternation, their surprise, their utter bafflement? From our 21st century vantage point, we can't really feel in our souls how much this story must have grated on their ears. To hear this story, we would have to replace the word Samaritan with other words, and I don't know what word you would use. There would be many. We could use Democrat or Republican. We could use terrorist or Muslim or something else. But also keep in mind that in some parts of the world, to understand this story the way with the emotional content, they may have to insert the word American or Christian. Whatever word you choose, one thing is clear. Jesus did not use his encounter with the holy, this time of clear affirmation by God, to bless the prejudices and social exclusions of his culture. Instead, Jesus showed James and John that their social enemies may in fact be those most likely to offer grace, healing, and love. In so doing, he went way beyond speaking out against fire from heaven to use fire from heaven against our enemies. He posited that our enemies are actually our neighbor. He reached deep into the souls of the disciples and out of their desire to turn a Samaritan village into smoldering ashes, he fashioned a sensitive, caring traveler that could only enlist the admiration and respect of the disciples. Jesus' story also took whatever visions of greatness and superiority that were growing in their minds and smashed them. For if Samaritans could offer God's grace and healing, maybe James and John and the disciples were not the only ones whom God had chosen. This is not to suggest that Jesus threw out the Hebrew scriptures and presented something totally new. The Hebrew scriptures do not actually speak with only one voice. And it's fascinating to me that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, back in Luke 4, when he's in the synagogue and he's quoting from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, release to the captives. He goes on to remark that, you know, prophets are not really honored in their own country. And then he picks out two examples from the Hebrew scriptures. And what are they? Elisha and Elijah. They show up again. He reminds his listeners that Elijah ministered to the widow of Zarephath and that Elisha healed Naaman the leper from our text last Sunday. Both of these people are outside the Jewish community. Jesus does not appeal to the fire from heaven stories, but to the acts of grace and healing and welcome to the outsider. And it so angered his hearers that they tried to throw him off a cliff. So I wonder about our times of worship, our times when we become in touch with the transcendence of God and we sense God's presence. Are these times perhaps of both blessing and danger? Like James and John, when we are on the mountain in awe of the power of God, when we are reduced to silence, when we feel blessed, embraced, and loved, this is as it should be in God's presence. For we are all created and loved by God. We are human and dependent on God for life, for meaning, and for wholeness.
But I also wonder if in these times we may be tempted to use God's power and embrace in support of our own quest for greatness or perhaps as an affirmation to turn our enemies into smoldering ashes. Does the blessing of God's presence in our life also make us vulnerable to invoke fire from heaven on our enemies with our tongues, with our attitudes, with our eyes? All of us carry some combination of social power. It may come from our race, our citizenship, our wealth, our gender, our education, or our associations with others. This social power can be a good thing, a wonderful thing, when it serves and blesses the community. But when we presume God's blessing on us, our group, our church, our nation, as a sign that we are privileged and entitled over others, we have misused God's embrace. Blaise Pascal, French mathematician and Catholic philosopher, stated, rather, stated it rather starkly this way. Men never do evil as thoroughly or as joyfully as when they do it in the name of God. Well, going back to Laos. On that day, confronted with the pickup truck and the armed Laos soldiers, I didn't say a word. I got into the pickup truck with my doctor friend, and off we went. There were no incidents, no shots fired, and we returned safely. But on that day, I believe I violated some of my most deeply held beliefs about who God is, about Jesus' way of peace, and the values of nonviolence to which I am committed. My ride on that pickup truck that day potentially put other children of God in danger, and it did not serve the community. But it has occurred to me since then that perhaps we are all still riding through this world on a heavily armed pickup truck. Maybe Elijah wouldn't look so strange after all in our first 21st century world. Fire from heaven is everywhere. It's in the air we breathe, on the evening news, in our video games, our movies. It's in our politics, our drone attacks, preemptive strikes. It's in terrorist attacks that have now become so commonplace. People do kill and die on our behalf. And sadly, the spiritual roots of this fire from heaven are alive and well in many communities of faith that gather. This dilemma of the pickup truck I have lived with and struggled with for nearly 30 years, and I will probably not resolve it today. We write letters, withhold war taxes, and at least try to get the cluster bombs off the truck. But we're still on the pickup truck riding around in a very heavily armed way with violence and great economic disparity swirling all around us. So in this time, we really need each other. Let us together seek encounters with God, powerful encounters, but let us be mindful of where these encounters are taking us. Let us also be the people who will remind one another that the God we worship is wild and will be not be domesticated to bless our fire from heaven. Let us seek powerful encounters with God, but let us also be the people who will bring a child into our midst when we are puffed up with our own greatness and quest for power. Let us seek powerful encounters with God, 
But let us also be people who will remind one another of the humanity of all those whom we would love to destroy, be they Republicans, Democrats, or Libertarians, Israelis, Palestinians, or people of another skin color, Muslims, or Christians, or terrorists. Let us seek powerful encounters with God, but let us also be people who will use our gifts, our energy, and our power, as our purpose statement says so well, for the well-being of Lancaster City and the broader world. Have you ever had a really moving experience, a holy moment, a time when God seemed especially near? The early church had a moment like this when tongues of fire came down from heaven and anointed them with the power of the Holy Spirit. This was a fire from heaven that united people from all over the known world who had gathered, people of all nations and languages and races. This fire from heaven created a spirit of unity and a community of sharing. This fire from heaven addressed the divisions and economic disparity of their day. This fire from heaven was filled with the power of love. Surely, this is the fire from heaven for us in our time. How will it shape us? How will it change us? How will it move us to bless our world? Amen.